everyone, it's Kelsey, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. Somehow, it is June already, um, halfway through June. For weeks now, spring has been happening all around us here in Calgary. Spring, the season of hope, <laughs> the season of new beginnings, the season of reawakenings. Everything is coming back to life. Everything is getting going again. We're all coming out of our houses after a long winter of hunkering down. Um, you know, we made it through another winter. And for our family, after the winter that we had, uh, it really feels like a huge victory. Because for many parts of the winter, it didn't seem like a sure thing that we would come out of, of this season as a family of four. Um, and we have. We are not unscathed. Um, we have lost many, many things in the last months, and we are still figuring out this new life um, since all of those losses. And, you know, with this disease, the losses aren't stagnant. Uh, we're not staying here. We know that. And that can be one of the most overwhelming parts of ALS is that as you grieve a loss or many losses, a function for the person who has the disease, they're trying to manage this new body, these new limitations they have for the family of the person with the disease. We're trying to manage all the extra help that this person needs, the sadness surrounding the things that we can't do with that person anymore, things we loved, things that made us feel connected to them. And it really is sort of like rewriting your relationships with people when you lose huge parts of the things that made them them, things they loved to do. Um, you know, of course, Chris is still very much Chris, but so many of the things that Chris loved are now gone for him. And that is not a small thing. So as the world does come back to life, we are really realizing all of the things that we've lost, you know, we had a hard fall, um, and it paled in comparison to our winter. Uh, December was two weeks in the ICU, two times on a ventilator for Chris, uh, and that cost us a lot. Uh, ALS is a disease that tends to pounce when you're sick with something else. And so for Chris, uh, what that has looked like as We've come into spring, a season of moving our bodies and getting outside and playing and being active. It's realizing there is no more driving a car. There is no more riding a bike in the way that he used to ride a bike. There's no more playing catch, hitting a baseball, throwing a football. No more, you know, taking care of the yard in the way that he loved to do. Um, there's a lot of things, and they seem to keep piling up as we go along, new things that present themselves to us that we are now aware are different than they were the last time we did them. So we are really just still adjusting to all of that. And, you know, I have been quiet on the podcast or silent on the podcast, um, despite thinking at different points that I would have the energy and the ability to come back to it. Um, you know, I thought in, in, October and November, that I had hit a really low point in life, but nothing has really compared to what happened to me sort of after the adrenaline um, 
and the immediate crisis of Chris's December ICU stay uh, after that was sort of resolved. And I had to really sift through the rubble, you know, of what was left behind after that. And what that looked like for me was, you know, pretty much the darkest part of my of my life. And so I've really, you know, stepped aside from the podcast. I've I haven't been as active on social media. Um, you know, and I'm I'm eager to talk about those things because they're important and because, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> I talk about how these things have impacted our lives. Um, and this is part of my story, you know, and it's been an interesting sort of journey for me over the last month to really figure out where I fit in this and how I can take care of myself because people say all the time, you know, you still have to take care of yourself, Kelsey. Um, you know, the whole put on your oxygen mask thing first, but it seemed so impossible. It is seems like people who say that have never been a caregiver, that people who say that don't understand that when you are caring for somebody and when you are the one responsible for keeping them alive, what you need comes last. And it has been really hard for me to find a way to insert my own needs in there. It did get to a point, though, where I felt that it was untenable for me to continue the way I was. Um, and so I have tried to make some steps to address my own needs. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's for a podcast, maybe another podcast down the future or down, down the line. But for today, I wanted to come here to explain why I haven't come here yet. Uh, the last time Chris and I recorded a podcast, you know, I'd really hoped that in the next week we would be able to record another podcast together. I wanted to go through what December was like for each of us. Um, but in sort of the weeks and months since we recorded that last podcast, uh, Chris's voice has gotten harder and harder to understand. Um, and it's really now at the point where a podcast where, you know, the medium is listening and there's no possibility for captions. Um, this is not a realistic thing that he can do anymore. And for me, of all the losses that we've had, the loss of sitting down and rehashing these parts of our lives and talking about our feelings together, though we put them out there in a very public way, has been a very private and um, sort of special, sacred experience for me. And, um, and now it's done. It's done in the way that we were doing it before. Um, and, and again, I'll explain more about that as we go on. Um, you know, it was just a few weeks ago that I was driving Chris to work um, because I drive Chris to work now every day and I pick him up every day um, because Chris can no longer drive. And um, I was driving him home from work and he looked over at me and he said, I really didn't think I would lose my voice. But that's where we are. 
Um, you know, there are a few reasons why ALS patients lose their voice. You know, predominantly their, their tongue is impacted. Our tongue is a muscle. Um, their diaphragm is impacted, which makes them not able to project. Um, for Chris, what really seems to be the issue and what really seems to have gotten worse since he was in the ICU uh, is not his tongue. Um, it's not his diaphragm. It seems to be his soft palate, which is something that we've dealt with for years now. Um, a soft palate that sort of is atrophied to the point that he's losing air through his nose when he tries to speak. Uh, it, it had seemed pretty stable for a long time, but after the ICU, it seems that the, that it got even worse. And now he loses so much air through his sinuses when he tries to speak that if he tries to project with anything really more than a whisper, um, he just loses that air through his nose and, and you can't understand what he's saying. This, uh, we've talked so much about communication being the hardest, uh, the hardest thing that we've dealt with the, the difficulty in communication, but in the last months it has been so much harder. Um, I have felt my own, uh, let me see, how do I even say this? I have felt my, my own sadness and, and grief and frustration and, and, and anger about it because I'm trying so hard to understand what he's saying. I'm the one who's supposed to always understand in a crowded room or wherever at work, if I'm there with him and he needs to get a point across and whatever it is, like, I feel this intense amount of pressure to be the perfect interpreter. And there are times when I just can't understand what he's saying at all. And we just have to look at each other and shrug. And I feel like I'm failing him and I know he's frustrated. And then he, I feel like he's frustrated with me and he's just frustrated with not being able to talk, but I'm the one there who can't understand him. Um, so this is a very, very hard, a very hard development for us. Um, so for now, Chris is not here and he can't, he, he can't join me in this medium, but we are hopeful that he'll be back um, soon. We have been using, um, experimenting with Chris's digital voice. So when Chris started to have bulbar onset of ALS and bulbar onset is when it's happening in your face and you're swallowing and you're in your voice. Um, we recorded, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast before that we recorded his voice. Um, it's called voice banking. And basically you record a you know, number of words and phrases and uh, this technology takes those recordings and they make sort of your own personal Siri out of those recordings. Um, and so it's not perfect because it's not Chris. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, he said he wanted to maybe start using it um, with an app on his phone. So we'll start with that app on his phone. And then we've also um, ordered and it's on its way a tablet that at some point, if he needs it, he can use with eye gaze, which is how I described back when we had Steve Gleason on the podcast, how he communicates, which is typing with his eyes. Um, it is slow, it is tedious, and um, it takes a lot of adjusting. So we've ordered this tablet so that Chris can hopefully start practicing because what we don't want is for him to end up in a situation where he needs it and he's not used to it. He hasn't worked with it and there's 
you know, an immense amount of extra frustration around the learning while he needs it. So hopefully we can do some learning on it beforehand. But the point is, um, down the line, Chris can be back in this way with his digital voice. Um, and that will be different, but he will still be here. And that's what we keep trying to remind ourselves. So a couple of weeks ago, we sat down and we listened to his digital voice. And, you know, I remember three years ago when we recorded it, listening to it and thinking, actually hated it, <laughs> completely hated it. And he felt pretty good about it at that point. And then we just sort of left it there. And then a couple weeks ago, we went back and listened to it again. And I was really pleasantly surprised by how much it sounded like him. And I suppose it's because I haven't heard Chris talk in that way now for for three years. His voice has been so different that even though it's different than how he sounded before, it's still so much more like he sounded than he sounds now. Um, so, you know, the voice, some things sound like right on exactly how he would have said them. And then some things sound very robotic because it's digital. It's, it's not all him. Uh, so it's not perfect, but you know, then there's this extra element of we, we played it for the kids the other day and our son loved it and was really excited and it made our daughter so very sad, um, because it's not her dad. And, you know, it's another sort of in-your-face realization and, you know, her little eight-year-old self saying to us, dad's never going to get better. He's never going to sound like himself again. And, you know, having to reckon with mortality at eight years old is, well, it's just not fair. So the new voice is exciting and it's also sad because anytime we need to access these new technologies and these new, you know, augmentative things to help us, it means we have had another loss. So that's sort of where we're at with, with Chris's voice. Um, so we ended the last episode talking about October and November. We never really got into December, um, a few months ago, I wrote uh, a blog post about this time, and it is a pretty good synopsis. Um, it's bleak. It's a bleak read, but it's a pretty good synopsis of what happened um, What happened in December. So, you know, I'm going to sort of go back to the beginning, the things that I remember. Uh, this was certainly the most traumatic thing that has ever happened to us. And, you know, I'm hopeful that it will be the most traumatic thing that has happened to us for a long time in the future. So it all started um, the weekend, like a little bit before the, a weekend that we were actually all four of us supposed to go to Toronto uh, to celebrate um, our 15th wedding anniversary. We were going to go see the Mariah Carey Christmas concert, which our daughter was so excited about. And we were going to go see Flames versus Leafs and go to the Hockey Hall of Fame and just do some really fun Christmas things as a family. And the day before we were supposed to leave, or two days before we were supposed to leave, uh, Chris just started to feel sort of off. Um, he had recently had his feeding tube changed from a G-tube to a G-J tube. So in a G-tube, you eat through your stomach. The G um, means gastro. It's going into your 
it's going into your stomach. The J tube is going, feeds into his jejunum, which is in your intestine. And so in an effort to eliminate the chance of all of these refluxes that we've had, that, you know, six or seven aspiration pneumonias that were caused by reflux, we decided to move to the J-tube, um, which means we're bypassing his stomach entirely and he's getting fed directly into his intestine. Um, you know, fast forward to now and the J-tube has been an amazing thing for us. We, it, you know, we don't really ever have to worry about reflux which means we're not worried about aspiration pneumonias caused by reflux. And, you know, if that had been what we had a year ago, uh, you know, we would have saved ourselves a lot of hospital trips. Um, but in early December, Chris had his G-tube switched to a GJ tube after the October and November things. We were looking for a solution, and this was sort of the first and least invasive attempt at solving this problem. Uh, not too long after that, he started to feel pretty unwell. Um, I started to worry that he maybe had some sort of infection, that he had gotten an infection, um, when he was in hospital to get that switched out. Um, but it turns out that what he had was influenza A, um, and who knows where he got that. Uh, the kids and I never got it, um, but he did have influenza A and, you know, right away, it didn't really seem like it was going to be a super bad hospitalization, you know, to the point where he was really encouraging me and the kids to still go to on the weekend trip to Toronto, um, you know, without him, because it wasn't going to be a bad hospitalization, we didn't think, but it, it was going to be bad enough that he wasn't going to be out in time to go with us. And I wasn't sure I felt about it. And then, um, you know, we thought, okay, we'll see how things go. Well, his breathing... <sighs> that day in the ER before he'd been put into a room really tanked. Um, we didn't really know what was going on, but he was struggling. And it was at that point that, you know, the ER doctors came in and they said, you know, if Chris's breathing continues like this, we really need to think about sort of a preventative or like getting ahead of it with an intubation um, and putting him on a ventilator. And, you know, that, had been mentioned once in October and then quickly went away. But this time he sort of gave us a deadline. Uh, he said, you know, what we want to avoid is making this an emergency uh, intubation. We want to be prepared for it. We want to be able to be calm and not be, you know, in crisis. And he sort of said, if Chris's breathing isn't better by, you know, whatever, three o'clock or something like that, we need to really have this conversation. And then Chris's breathing was better by three o'clock. And so it felt like, okay, we're going to, we've figured out, we're going to figure it out. It's going to be fine. Um, but it was obvious that things were different that night when instead of admitting him to the pulmonary unit, which is where he is normally admitted in the hospital, he was admitted to the ICU. And, you know, it still felt like, oh, it's not that bad. You know, we, he got put in the ICU. The kids and I went to see him. We were, you know, scheduled to leave the next morning, I didn't want to go. Um, he still wanted us to go. I said, let's just, like, <laughs> you're in the ICU. But the ICU doctors and nurses were saying, you're the healthiest ICU patient we've ever had. You know, you'll get out of here tomorrow. You'll go up to the ward. Uh, and so we said, let's just see how the night goes. And, and, and we went to see him, and we left him, and he was fine. He was drinking a bottle of water, you know, very slowly as he did. Um, he had oxygen, but not a ton. 
and and we thought, okay, you know, just another run of the mill hospitalization, which unfortunately it becomes the norm for us. So the kids and I went home and we went to bed and I had had some bad sleeps because of all of the hospital stuff. And so I was exhausted and I fell asleep really, really hard, I guess. <laughs> I woke up at 3.15 in the morning and I looked over and, and our son had at some point come into bed with me, which is, is unnormal for me to not wake up when something like that happens, like when a child comes into my bed. And then I picked up my phone. I had seven missed text messages and three missed calls maybe from Chris. And my heart immediately started to just pound in my chest because I knew something awful had happened. Um, And so I read the text messages, which said that he was confused about what was happening himself, but that his he was asleep and that then they came in and woke him up and said that his breathing was compromised to the point where they had to intubate him. Um, that I believe he had an aspiration event uh, and he was still using his G-tube or no, I'm not really sure. He was drinking. I guess he drank a bottle of water, I think, that night. So he had, he aspirated, I think, then. Um, and he, I think they at that point knew he had tested positive for influenza A as well. But, you know, I, I missed the calls and I woke up to the messages that said, they're intubating me. We tried to call. I love you and the kids so much. And that was it. They had been sent an hour before I woke up. So I couldn't message him back. I couldn't ask him what was going on. I have never felt more alone in my entire life than those hours, 3.15 in the morning. And who did I call? Who? What do I do? I... I was stunned. I was terrified. I remembered that I had written down the number to the ICU on the whiteboard downstairs. I was shaking. I was freezing, even though it was warm in our house. I went downstairs and I got the number and I called the ICU and I said, my husband's in the ICU and I, got, I missed a bunch of calls and and, and I, they intubated him. And she said, oh, okay, what's his name? And, and they sent me to a doctor that was on his case. And the doctor answered the phone and he said, you know, I'm so sorry. We, Chris's breathing really deteriorated and we had to intubate him. And I interrupted him and I said, is he alive? And the doctor said, oh, of course. <laughs> like that was... <laughs> something I should know that of course he's alive, but I had, I didn't, I didn't know. And I said, what do I do? And he said, well, you can come for rounds. You know, they start around eight 30 and it was three 15 in the morning. And I had to wait until eight 30 to go see Chris. And I had two sleeping 
kids upstairs. And I had to figure out how to tell them that their dad was on life support and unconscious. And I didn't know, I didn't know what was going to happen next. Cohen woke up before Willa and I took him through it and we cried and we just went to bed together and laid there. And then Willa woke up and I explained it to her and we cried and then we laid there and then we got up in the morning and, and I brought them to school because I didn't have another choice. I I wasn't going to bring them to the ICU. I don't have family here. I didn't feel like them sitting at home was going to be the right thing to do. I felt like they needed distractions. I also know how wonderful the people at our school are, and I knew that they would take care of Cohen and Willa in whatever way they needed to be taken care of that day. So I dropped them off early at a friend's house so that she could take them to school. And I went to the hospital so I could get there in time for rounds. And and I just kept thinking how it was going to feel to walk into that room and see Chris there. Just not there, but there. And I didn't know how to prepare myself for that. So I got there and I think the thing about the ICU is that this is what they do every day. So the nurse who was taking care of him was wonderful and lovely and all of the things that I was so scared about, like that he wouldn't even wake up, you know, she was like, no, like he's going to wake up, like he's on medicine and then we'll take him off the medicine. He'll wake up. But he was um, sedated and on a paralytic that first, I think, 24 hours And I don't remember if it was 24, but I know it was that whole first day that I was there. And I just sat by him and I just told him how sorry I was that I didn't wake up when he called. And, you know, I told him what was going on with the kids and I told him that we needed him to wake up. Willa had brought him her favorite teddy bear and it was sitting at his feet and I just kept holding his hand and hoping that he would wake up and I picked up the phone like so many times that day to send him a message and I think the hardest part for me was just knowing that there was nobody else on the other end of that chat And I felt so, I felt so unmoored. I felt like, you know, we've been married 15 years. We've been together 17 years. I met him when I was 21. And I never really understood until that moment, like, the devastation of doing life without him. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but like until your person can't respond to you, you don't, you don't know, you don't understand. So that first day, it was really hard. 
you know, my sister-in-law came uh, that night and, and that was great. (laughs) You know, she was, I just needed somebody there who understood and who loved Chris, who loves Chris, you know, like I love Chris unconditionally and, and she dropped everything despite the fact that she's a single mom and it's not easy for her to get up just up and you know she lives in New Hampshire it's not easy for her to just do that she's a teacher she's got her own very busy and hectic life and two kids and she jumped on a plane and was there uh, I think she got there late that night uh so she got to see Chris that night and we got home you know and then she ran point for my kids until my mom got here um but that first day was was devastating, um, and I was so scared that he wasn't going to wake up. After that first day on the ventilator, I went home, and you know I got the kids to bed, and I climbed into bed myself, and I picked up my phone because I didn't know what to do if not to end a day like that without talking to him. Um, so I wrote him this note. <laughs> It's almost 1 a.m. I've been up for almost 24 hours. I just got in bed. I'm sleeping on your side. Cohen took my place. Willa is in the middle. I'm writing you a text that is going to buzz on your phone a foot away from me on the nightstand. You won't answer this. So many times today I wanted to tell you something. That Connie was taking Cohen to the Wranglers game. That he forgot his shoulder pads and practiced without them. That he won practice player of the day anyway. That Willa talked Don's ear off at bedtime, somehow traversing splits and losing teeth and Godzilla in one conversation thread. I told Don she got played. I wanted to tell you that when Colleen got there and I said to you, your sister's here, you immediately coughed for the first time. I wanted to tell you what the elf on the shelf did and that Daryl pulled the goalie with almost three minutes left when we were down by two and we scored. I did tell you that, actually, as I had the Flames game on while I was sitting with you in your room. I have so many things left to tell you, love. You have to stay with us. Please stay with us. You made it through day one on a ventilator. You can do this, baby. I love you so much. He did do it. He came off the ventilator. He passed all his breathing tests. They took him off the ventilator. It felt like the biggest win in the world. Like we got through this huge thing and we were coming out the other side. And then a morning after he'd been off the ventilator, I came back to the hospital and he was back on high flow oxygen and he wasn't doing great. And he spent the entire day that way, just struggling to breathe. I could see the skin moving in, in between his ribs uh, he was working so hard to breathe. I've I've never seen, I've never seen somebody use so many muscles to try to breathe. He was exhausted. He had a fever. Uh, he had an aspiration pneumonia. I think ultimately they they said he had a viral and a bacterial pneumonia, and influenza A, and he ended up with a staph infection as well. Um, and so as that day wore on, you know they said we're probably going to have to put him back on the ventilator. And, you know, people with ALS, they go on ventilators. They don't come off ventilators. And then the conversation started to be, if he can't come off the ventilator, you know, 
again if he needs to, if we put him on the ventilator and then he comes off again and then he needs to go back on, what will that look like? And at that point, it looked like a tracheostomy. And basically a tracheostomy is, you know, putting a hole in your neck where they can attach the ventilator so that when you need to be on the ventilator, you don't have to be intubated every time. Um, you can't speak with a tracheostomy and, you know, sort of the feeling was maybe if Chris couldn't manage his secretions, basically if he was aspirating just his spit and his own, you know, in this case, because he was sick mucus that he was creating, if that was getting into his lungs, maybe he would need a tracheostomy no matter what, maybe that's how we'd go home that he probably wouldn't need a ventilator. We we were pretty hopeful that his lungs would recover from the flu. But if he couldn't manage his secretions and he kept just getting pneumonia after pneumonia after pneumonia, then the pneumonias would kill him because, you know, aspiration pneumonia is the second leading cause of death for ALS patients behind respiratory failure. So these are the conversations that we were having. Um, you know, a trach means voice is gone. A trach means a very different life than you walked into the hospital with. Um, by the end of that day, he welcomed getting put back on the ventilator because he was so tired. So this time, not in crisis, in in a more planned and and you know calm way, they reintubated him. They put him back on the ventilator, and you know after they did that, I went home. He was unconscious again. The kids woke up the next morning and I had to tell them that dad went back on the ventilator. And then they went to school again because, you know, what, what do you do in this situation? You know, I was honest with them. I was telling them, I was answering all their questions. I I always am, but sitting at home wasn't going to be the best thing for them. You know, our daughter would go and, and play, I think like, connect for or whatever, play some games with the principal in the office. Our son sort of just hung out with the admin and helped her with tasks and their teachers were just so wonderful about it. So I went back to the hospital and, uh, you know, it wasn't long after they woke him up that time. And then he was awake and on the ventilator again. And we all decided we we're going to leave him on the ventilator for a bit longer that time because, you know, he needed, we needed to really be sure when he came off the next time that he was going to be better. And he had such a fever. He had a fever high for more than a week and he was miserable. I mean, everybody knows how miserable fevers can be. He was so miserable. I was just constantly wetting washcloths and ice water and placing them all over his body and his head. And he wanted me to just wring ice water onto his head over and over and over again. Um, he was so hot and he was so uncomfortable. Um, we celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary in the ICU. And that day was calm enough that we actually, you know, sat next to each other and were able to watch a movie. Um, and that felt weird, but you know, it was good in the most weird way. Um, and then, you know, they took him off the ventilator again and we had to wait and see of how he would do. And he did much better that time. And, you know, after almost two weeks in the ICU, they moved him up to pulmonary for a few days. And once he got into pulmonary, uh, it was obvious he was going to be home soon. 
And yeah, I mean, two times on a ventilator. It was, I don't know how long after that, that, you know, one of his doctors, the doctor who diagnosed him actually said, who, you know, he's been an ALS specialist for, you know, some three decades, said he had never had an ALS patient come off a ventilator. And Chris came off a ventilator two times. So we knew that his lungs were still strong. We went home with no breathing support. We did have a few tools in our toolbox when we left the ICU that we felt were going to be game-changing for us. And, and we still believe are absolutely game-changing for us. Chris got home before Christmas, um, you know, which was really, really special to be able to say that he was home for Christmas. But we were the walking wounded. We were shell-shocked. We were exhausted. We were sad. The Chris that we got back from the hospital was an entirely different Chris than the one who went to the hospital. You know, all of a sudden, he needed help with everything. Any single thing you do in a day to get yourself ready, he needed help with. He needs help with getting dressed, going to the bathroom, taking a shower, drying himself off. Never mind the medical things he needs help with. Just every single thing in a day he needed help with. His left shoulder was completely shot. His left hand isn't awesome. Um, his right shoulder is still strong, but his right hand has been gone for years. And that was sort of the beginning for me of this huge lifestyle shift of oh, this is what caregiving is really like. Because I had, I Chris's caregiver before that, but now I did everything. I had to drive everybody and I got to take the kids to school and to hockey and to whatever other appointments they have. Plus I got to manage Chris's medical needs. Plus I've got to manage just Chris's everyday small needs. And we have this bedtime routine and this wake-up routine that take a long time. And I just felt like I was absolutely drowning. Um, January, February, March, he was back in the hospital in March at the beginning of the month. It felt like a small trip for sure. And it was in the grand scheme of things, sort of a blip, but he was back in the hospital. Um, you know, end of March, we went to Florida on vacation and that was amazing. It was a lot of work. I now travel with, you know, all of this medical equipment and I have to sort of be ready for anything. Um, the kids were anxious that something would happen to dad on the plane. They were anxious we wouldn't get to take the trip because he'd get sick beforehand. You know, they were anxious about a lot of things. I was anxious about a lot of things. Um, but we got to go to Florida. We got to see some baseball games together. We got to swim. We got to just be a family instead of a family in crisis. And that felt really good. But still, I was not doing great. You know, when Chris was in the hospital in March, we were waiting to see a gastroenterologist because I was worried that Chris had a GI bleed. And the way that healthcare works in Canada and Calgary and Alberta is that uh, if you are in a queue in the hospital to see a doctor, you're going to get in a lot faster than if you are in a queue 
outside of the hospital to see a doctor. So we're talked about, you know, staying an extra couple days in hospital to see this GI versus leaving, getting a referral and not seeing that GI for six months. So we stayed the extra couple days in the hospital. And one day we were waiting and waiting and waiting to see the GI because he kept getting pulled to emergencies and, and he couldn't get there. And I had therapy and I hadn't had therapy for months. And I really, I had a list on my phone of things I wanted to talk about at therapy and I had to cancel it because I was waiting for this doctor and Chris can't communicate without me there because he's so hard to understand. And I needed to be able to say all the things I needed to say. And I had to be there for him. And it was just another reminder for me of how I have to take the back seat and my needs have to take the back seat. And so I canceled my therapy appointment and the doctor never showed up. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so it's been a hard, hard many months. You know, we looked at Chris's car in the garage for a lot of months, for a lot of weeks, and he avoided the garage for a lot of weeks because you know, it was like he hadn't even had his car for a year. We hadn't even had to get it, the oil changed, and now he couldn't drive it anymore. And he loved this car. Every single time in the year he had that car, that he drove that car, he told me, I love my car. <laughs> and uh, I wanted him to keep it. It didn't make any sense. But I said, let's just keep it. Um, but we had to get rid of it. We had to sell it. I spent an entire week getting it inspected and getting it washed and getting the oil changed just to sell it. And everywhere I went, everybody told me, oh, this is a beautiful car. This is a beautiful car. And I said, let's just keep it. Let's get rid of my car. My car is bigger and it's more realistic for our family. This His car wasn't the best choice for a lot of reasons, but I just wanted him to keep it because he loses so many things. So we sold the car and the garage was empty. And for a few days, every time I parked the car in the garage, I just cried. Seeing one car in the garage, it feels like we just keep losing pieces, pieces of Chris. They just keep going. You know, and the, and the fear, the ultimate thing that sits out there is that someday we lose Chris entirely, that we lose all these pieces of him until the only thing left to lose is him. And then we lose him. December made us realize just how devastating that would be. The same day that we put Chris's car up for sale, he tried to ride his bike. And he could do it, but it wasn't safe. Sort of if one thing went wrong, because he can't use his arms well enough and his hands well enough, he was going down. And, you know, we know ALS patients who have died from falling because they can't catch themselves. And it's just like, there's so many ways that he could get hurt seriously. And so I said, like, we can't ride the bike the way it is either. So it was the bike, it was the car, it was playing catch. It was all these things that we were losing on top of all the things we'd already lost. And it was a really heavy, it was heavy. And Chris was sad and I was sad and the kids are sad. <sighs> but in the middle of all of that, there were still beautiful things happening in our life. The biggest thing, and it's a huge thing, is that in April, Tofersen, 
the drug that Chris has been on, the experimental drug that Chris has been on since July of 2019 was approved by the FDA and is no longer experimental. It's been approved. It's shown that it's effective, that it's safe. You know, Chris and I worked alongside other ALS advocates to try to implore the FDA to approve this medicine. It becomes only the fourth ever approved medicine uh, for ALS, the first ever approved for a targeted um, genetic mutation for ALS. And this gives all sorts of hope to the ALS community. For us, what it means is that this medicine isn't going to go away. Because in the almost four years since he started, since Chris started getting Tofersen, that was a fear that we had, that this medicine would cease to exist. And we wholeheartedly believe, as do all the doctors that we have worked with, that Chris is alive because of Tofersen. And Tofersen hasn't given us just like more time. Tofersen has given us years of high quality life together. And while we have had a lot of losses in the last months, we also feel right now like Chris isn't sick. He's disabled. He's much more disabled than he was, um, you know, last year at this at this time. But we don't feel like he's sick. We have a lot of tools that we learned in the ICU. We have the J-tube now. We feel like Chris is doing really well in that way. Um, and that he could live a lot of years like this. You know, we know that there could always be another illness, another influenza A around the corner. And we're aware of that. But we also feel like Chris is really stable right now. And, you know, that is a thousand percent because of Tofersen. You know, we were really worried when Chris left the ICU that his breathing uh, will, would have been impacted by two times on a ventilator. Like I said, that is not something that ALS patients do come off ventilators. And he took a test with his respirologist in January when we were in the ALS clinic that measures the strength of your diaphragm. And his diaphragm is like pretty much the exact same strength as his, you know, young, fit, 30-something-year-old doctor. Um so we are so grateful for all of the things that we do have. And, and, you know, like I said, going back to that quality of life thing, like Chris is going to work every day, every day. We get up in the morning and I take the kids to school. I drop Chris off at, at work. I go to the gym. I come home. I do my thing. I go back. I pick him up at work. I pick the kids up at school. We have found a rhythm. We have found a groove. And we're working through all of these losses that we've had, and it feels like we're figuring it out. You know, the scary thing about this disease is you never know what's out there, what's coming next. But it feels like right now we can manage this. It feels like we have improvised and overcome the changes that happened when Chris was in the ICU. We know it's not static. We aren't blind to what's going on. We aren't blind to any of the realities here. But we know what we have right now. And we know that we feel like we've figured it out for now. We have a handle on it for now. And that's a really wonderful feeling. And, you know, the sun is shining and the grass is turning green. And I planted flowers the other day. We are coming up 
this weekend to the four-year anniversary of Chris being diagnosed with ALS. Chris was diagnosed in June of 2019, and at that time, his neurologist told him he had six to 12 months to live. We had hope that the clinical trial that he joined was going to work. We thought maybe it would be the magic bullet, but we also had a motto, believe in the best, plan for the worst. And so that year, way back in 2019, when our kids were seven and four, we embarked on what we labeled a summer to last a lifetime because we thought for our kids, the memories that we made that summer would have to last a lifetime, that that was our last summer as a family of four, at least in that way that we had it then. But here we are. And we are about to embark on our fifth summer to last a lifetime, our fifth summer to make plans together, to make memories together. And so when school wraps up for this year, we are going to be off on another summer to last a lifetime. We are going to take adventures together. We are going to make memories together, and we are going to soak in every single bit of this life that we still have together. Here's the thing. There will never be enough summers. There will never be enough holidays, enough regular days, enough memories or moments or minutes or days or years with the people who we love. We know that we'll never hit a moment when we say, okay, that's it. We've made enough memories. We've had enough hugs. We've shared enough laughs. All we can do is make the most of the days we have to suck the marrow out of every good minute that is offered to us and to rest and be kind to ourselves on the days where we feel like we're drowning to honor all the sadness and joy and hope and desperation and laughter and excitement that come our way. I've learned a lot about my life. I've learned a lot about myself in these last months. I've learned what happens when anxiety grips you to an extent that you can't see the joy that's out there. You can't see the hope that still exists. I've learned again how important it is for me to move my body in order to keep my mind as healthy as possible. And I've learned that this life that I live has tipped the scales on a perhaps subclinical level of anxiety into something that is really unhealthy and could be very scary long-term if left untreated and ignored. What I have learned in these last months has brought me to a place where there are days when I feel okay. I feel okay. And I feel like everybody should know that you can be okay even when you're sad, even when you're losing something as monumental as what my family stands to lose. You can have points where you feel okay and where you laugh hard until your belly hurts and when you're, where you're silly and dance with your kids in the kitchen when you're getting ready for school and do embarrassing things like blow them kisses the entire time you... They're walking into the building when you drop them off and be present and enjoy the moments that make up this life because that's what life is, right? It's just a bunch of moments, some of them good, 
some of them bad, hopefully more good than bad. And sometimes we have to take action to try to give ourselves more good moments than bad, or at least more good moments in the midst of all the bad ones. I have spent the last week preparing recordings that Chris had done, podcast episodes and different things he'd recorded, to turn into his digital voice. We already have one digital voice, uh, but we wondered if we took all of these clips we had of him in interviews talking about things that he loves to talk about in his really natural cadence, if it would make an even better voice. So you know, huge thanks to Team Gleason because they are enabling us to give his voice another try and see if we can make one we like even better than the first one. But what that means is that over the last week, I have listened to hours of Chris talking, of the Chris that I fell in love with talking, listening to him laugh and tell stories and tell us that he loves us and not having to feel pressure to understand what he's saying and not have to feel sad that I couldn't understand what he was saying. And there is a large element of guilt involved in the fact that I have spent a lot of time sitting at my computer missing my husband, missing that version of my husband, even though he's physically in the room next to me for a lot of this, that version of Chris is not here anymore. And I will miss it forever. I will always miss his voice and I will always miss his laugh and I will always miss our easy banter and the way a conversation would bounce between the two of us. I will always miss his smile. But as my dear friend Sandra Abravaya once said, it's okay to miss things. Just a couple notes as I wrap up this episode. Um, this is going to be the last episode and the third episode of the third season. I think in the fall I will do a third season, take two. <laughs> um, I miss this podcast. I miss having these conversations with people. I miss this community, and I'm eager to get back to it. I also recognize um, what my limits are and how much bandwidth I have. Right now, I am the only caregiver for Chris. Um, I'm the only one who knows how to do some of the more complicated medical things that he needs on a daily basis. Uh, we have started down the path of looking for some home care, and it just wasn't really working out as well as we'd hoped. We weren't finding the right fit. And as we got closer to summer, we recognized that we will be gone a good bit in the summer. And so perhaps finding somebody and training them and only to be gone for a long period of time and perhaps lose them as a result of that was maybe sort of pointless. So all to say that when our summer adventures wrap up, uh, we are really hoping to hire somebody to come and help. Um, and with that, I really hope to be able to get back to this podcast in earnest. Um, I really want to thank everybody who has been patient with me, who has 
supported me, who has stuck by me and my family during this really hard year. I'm pretty amazed by the amount of strangers who send their love and tell me, you know, they're thinking of me when they haven't seen me post on social media for a while. I really thought that I could do it all this year with the podcast and Chris's health. And, you know, I just couldn't. Um, I didn't, I still don't know what my life is really going to look like on a daily basis. Um, and this year was pretty overwhelming for me. But I am hopeful, like I said, that we, you know, have these new tools and we have a handle on things. And in the fall, I'm hopeful that we'll find some help. And, you know, that'll make a big difference in all of our lives. So for now, I wish you the happiest summer. I wish you a summer to last a lifetime. And I thank you, as always, for listening. The past is now.